This is the Untamed Ethos Podcast. Join us as investment pros, executives, and other experts talk business, personal growth, investing, politics, and the trending topics well-rounded pros need to know about. Authentic, unfiltered, and fun. Joshua Wilson is the founder of United Ethos Wealth Partners, a registered investment advisor. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of United Ethos's investment advice on this podcast, and nothing you'll hear on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. All opinions expressed by Joshua and by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of United Ethos or its affiliates. Welcome back to the Untamed Ethos Podcast. I'm Joshua Wilson. And with me again is Dr. Vix, Russell Rhodes. Say hi, Russell. Hi, Russell. <laughs> Got you on that one, didn't I? You, you did. Okay. You did. <laughs> I feel like, feel like I'm here with Chevy Chase. Uh, God, I, no, 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 no. Nobody liked that guy. Well, well, you can be Harold Ramis. I want to be Harold Ramis. Uh, that's not true. He's polarizing. He's polarizing. Right. I want to be Harold Ramis. He's a nice guy. Who's Harold Ramis? He was uh, Ghostbusters. He actually directed Caddyshack. So he was a lot more, but he was part of that whole group of people. Okay, got it. He was the goofball on Caddyshack. And, I didn't oh, see this. He was, Bill, he was Bill Murray's uh, friend who in Stripes. Yeah, I don't remember that. It's been a while. <laughs> Harold, Harold Ramis is a good guy. I, I, I don't want to be Chevy Chase. Nobody likes him. So. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, 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 it was, it, it's surprising because, you know, when you're a kid, I there were so many movies that were Chevy Chase movies, you know, the, the, especially the National Lampoons, you know, Christmas Vacation, you know, one of the greatest Christmas movies ever. And then, you know, <laughs> Family Vacation. And he had so many great movies. And then becoming an adult and finding out that everyone hates Chevy Chase. I know, it, it hurts. Was, it, was, it did kind of hurt my soul a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like finding out that Bob Saget's uh, um, comedy routine was dirty. Oh, my gosh. Isn't that, isn't that contrast <laughs> funny? So I wonder, I wonder how old the uh, Olsen twins were when they found out that, that he really was kind of, uh, you know, had two sides to him. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay. So um, if you're new to us, uh, understand you can follow us a few other places as well. Um, I, we're, we're on Spotify. We're on YouTube. Uh, on YouTube, we've got more content coming out. Uh, Spotify and Apple Podcasts are pretty limited to just to just the podcast. Uh, the podcast is going to continue to take shape with uh, more um, guests coming up this month. Uh, we've got Michael Guy on the show here in a few weeks. We've also got uh, Bob Elliott, uh, who is uh, on the investment committee at uh, with with Ray Dalio. Uh, we've got Mary Beth Kuzmeski, a uh, marketing uh, whiz um, for financial advisors. Um, we've got Jim Carroll, the Vixologist, uh, on this month as well. So, uh, and several more that are that are that are currently being planned. So, we'll have a lot of guests coming on, and then we'll continue to to talk very regularly, uh, Russell and I, on the markets. So, the the show is going in the direction to where we'll 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 have uh, guests regularly, but also Russell and I just talking markets regularly as well. So that's the direction that the show is going. And you can follow us uh, on Instagram at, at untamed underscore ethos. And also uh, tw- Russell and I are both on Instagram uh, at Russell Rhodes and at the Joshua Wilson uh, which is a goofy name that I that I picked when 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 Twitter was was first out, but Joshua Wilson was taken, so 
somehow I was not early enough to be Joshua Wilson, but early enough to be the Joshua Wilson. So, uh, so yeah, you can look, look at this there. We're also on uh, LinkedIn and Facebook. If you want to follow us, uh, follow us there uh, as well. So let's jump in. Uh, Russell, we've, uh, we've got an intern this summer. We do have an intern. It's intern <laughs> season. It is intern season. Uh, I've actually got two interns. One, one, one with just you and I, and then one that I'm working with another, with, with, with the other firm. Um, so I've got two interns this this this, this intern season. And uh, Russell, we we did something interesting with the in, intern. I think it'd be fun to talk about because you you have you you have more contact with her than I do at this point. But I had sent her an assignment uh, last week, uh, just saying. Hey, let's. I want you to dig into ESG and um, environmental social governance and CEI, which is the corporate equ- equality, a corporate equality index, and uh, DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, and kind of the intersection of these. And I didn't give her a whole lot of direction, Russell. I basically just wanted her to, you know. She's a novice, start from scratch, dig into it, learn about it. And then as she kind of gets a little bit under her feet, then she can kind of help us with uh, with some of the direction we want to take with some of these talks and, and doing research on that. So I gave her a, a very broad, uh, very broad assignment. And I understand you've been you've been talking to her. What's what's her reaction so far? Of, of, of her oh, just, my gosh. Hold on. Direction. I have to I have to. I, I'm trying to do some math for something I want to talk about in a couple of minutes, uh, I, but let's see. Um, so uh, we talked about a few things. Where's the ESG thing that, that she said to me? Uh, the first thing she said, and I'm just looking at the uh, the text, um, the, asked a question. Okay. Is this ESG stuff some sort of scam? <laughs> this is an 18 year old that's getting ready to go to college with and so so a complete blank slate yeah is this esg stuff uh a scam and then what i actually did was i sent her a tweet from um from elon, elon musk that yeah. says i am increasingly convinced that corporate esg is the double incarnate um Ouch. which i i assume means that he doesn't want to spend money on it etc i you know i thought that was really funny uh, but uh, after I got the comments about ESG, I said, well, let me know what you think about DEI. And the response was, you should be looking into DEI because yikes. <laughs> and I don't know what that, that's all I got text-wise. We haven't been able to have a, a an ESG, DEI, CEI meeting yet. <laughs> but I, I, I'm thinking maybe we, we have her on and on a, maybe a short podcast. And say, okay, what, you know, you're, you're a blank slate. You've never invested before. Um, You know, tell us what you think about the CSG stuff and just let it go from there. And this is someone who uh, in in high school was uh, in the political club and in the environmental club. So it's not like, you know, she's a rip roaring capitalist that wants to make a bunch of money and tear up the world. Yeah. Uh, the the response I got the the, the yikes it just cracks me up <laughs> yikes dei I was not expecting this I I actually expected um, a lot more I actually expected more uh, just just uh, general knowledge about it because I feel like that schools talk about maybe not ESG but I would I would assume that they're hearing about dei 
Not at her school. That, uh, okay. Okay. So, and, yeah, and the, the reason is uh, she, she was, she goes to a private Catholic school. Ah, uh, got it. Yes. The, uh, in fact, the public school that she would go to, uh, everybody can kind of figure out that I might be related to this person. Um, the, uh, the, the school that, that if she had gone to public school, they just hired a chief DEI officer for the high school in my neighborhood. And one of the universities that I um, used to work for uh, took money away from every department to establish a DEI. And the money that they took away, uh, the, the way that the finance department contributed to it was what they got. They got rid of Bloomberg's for the students. <laughs> I know. And, and the thing is, if I, and, and I was still at the school when this happened. Um, but the thing is, if, you know, if you're thinking about going to university and you want to go into investments uh, and 95% of schools have Bloomberg's and this one doesn't, uh, I would have, if it were my kid thinking about it, I'd have a hard time sending them to that school when they can get better real world experience at another university like IU. We've got a ton of Bloomberg's. And it's one of the great things about, about being in, you know, being at a university and learning something that's applicable is that you can be you can be totally proficient on a Bloomberg before you even get your first job. But also think of it this way. So uh, where do you think, you know, what, it, what heck, Ken Griffin, lots of money going to Harvard. Um, you know, there's uh, one of the directional schools in Michigan was funded by a guy that used to be on CNBC all the time. And my point is uh, the people that the, the the money that you get to do all the great things that you get as a university partially comes from alums and you want those their you want your alumni to be doing quite well and to have some cash that they can send your way if you're not supporting what are going to be the higher earners that's going to catch up with you in the long run it's going to catch up with your endowment etc you know, back in the day, you couldn't even study business at an Ivy League school. And now I think they all just just about all of them have a graduate business program. Well, they also have gigantic endowments. And I think a good part of the endowments come from really successful business leaders that got a degree at those schools. So, I, you know, DEI, it's great. We I, I feel like it's it, it. You know, there's a proper place for it as well. But uh I have a I have a cousin who is 30 years older than I am, you know, southern stuff. Alabama guy of course. And he he asked me to talk to his youngest daughter who was very very liberal and wanted to do a lot of social stuff and explain to her that you got to you, you know when you're you, you got to make some money to do some good as well. And doesn't mean that you're doing bad when you're making the money as well. So, you know, that that's th those are the things that come in my mind when I hear about universities becoming much more DEI oriented, you do want your graduates to have some skills that are going to be able to be monetized and then kick some money back to the school in the long run. And that's a very cold way to think about it. But if a university is not, uh, you know, doesn't have enough money to do what they want to do, they start cutting programs or they end up getting absorbed by another university. And we've seen small schools get absorbed by a university. Uh, Memphis State slash University of Memphis uh, took over, I think, Lambeth College in Jackson, Tennessee, and now it's an extension of the University of Memphis. I didn't know Lambeth was was taken over by. Memphis. I think it was Lambeth. Um, I'm pretty sure it was Lambeth. I can't, it's whatever smaller school was in uh, 
accent. Yeah, you see that. Yeah, I mean, I think I think, uh, I think Texas A and M's law school used to be Texas Wesleyan Law. Yep. Yeah, and, and they picked that picked that over. It's um, it's U of M at Lambeth. That's what Lambeth University is now. So and probably- and it's only about seventy miles away from uh, the main campus at Memphis, but Lambeth and uh, Memphis College of Art, which was a university that was right. Amy Carter. President Carter's daughter went there. They went out of business. So yeah. you're seeing I, I, you're seeing a consolidation in the in the education industry. Yeah, overwhelmingly businesses where the money is at, um, and you know STEM especially. And you know you're lucky if you can make money with with arts, and some obviously do, but it's few and far between. You know, uh, Brown I think was uh, my alma mater was the holdout in uh, the business school program. They ended up. I don't know. It's been a number of years ago. It's not recent, but they ended up doing a joint program with IE Business School in Spain. So they, they have a joint program instead of their own program, but they do. But the, but business econ is the closest thing. At least when I was there, they could have changed it. But business econ, you know, economics with a concentration in business somehow um, was the closest thing really a business that, that Brown had. And there was no finance there either. And you know, as you might guess, Brown is one of the poorer of the Ivy Leagues. Now, still, still rich by everyone else's standards, but from the, from the Ivy League perspective, it's it's a, it's a bit more poor. But you know, Brown, we are kind of the 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 hippie of the Ivy League, or the collection of everything else that doesn't fit into one of the standard Ivy League stereotypes. <laughs> well, I I just I, I have a heck of a time picturing you as a hippie. Yeah, well, that that's that's the thing is I'm the everything else. Uh, every, I'm definitely the the everything else. The the land of misfit toys, and there's the the one kid from rural Alabama that uh, that that ended up there and should have had a passport to to go there. I mean, it was the amount of things that you learn that are outside the, the things I learned outside the classroom far exceeded. Oh, I'm sure. What I learned in the, yeah. classroom, the classroom, especially, especially freshman year, because there's, you have such a, a perception of things that you think you understand. Cause you know, I remember, I'll give you one, one, one short story. Um, so I'm you know, raised in rural Alabama and very conservative, very Christian and very, old school gentlemanly values, what we were taught, taught. And one of the things about, you know, being from the deep South is you open the door for women. This is oh, what yeah. you're taught. Um, it was never explained to me in detail, but this is something you did. I would open my mother's car door. I would open the door for if you're walking up to a store and you see a woman that's near you, you open the door and allow her to go first. If you're leaving, you, uh, you know, allow her to go first. This is just something that you did. Um, never put a lot of planning into it. It was just, you know, when you're a child and you're raised, this is what you do. And your parents praise you for doing the right thing. You do it. And, uh, you know, so leaving there, I, I kind of thought of myself as, I guess, feminist enough because I believed, uh, you know, if you equal work, equal pay, you know, this is kind of how you kind of think, conceptualize it as at, at age 18 and, you know, uh, women free to make decisions and live how they want to live and whatever, you know, that just seems, oh yeah, basic human stuff. 
and then I remember getting to Brown and uh, it, was my, it, was my, it was my first week on campus and I'm walking up to the, uh, the, the door of the Sharp Refractory, AKA the Ratty, which was uh, one of the um, cafeterias, the biggest cafeteria on campus. And so there's a girl coming just behind me. And so I open the door and hold it for her and she stops and she says, what are you doing? So well, I'm opening the door for you. Why? Are you not going in the door? You're, yes. You're, you're so toxic. <laughs> I, I didn't have a good explanation for why I was opening the door for her. And I'm just, are, are, are you, are you, are you going in? I'm going in, but why are you holding it for me? Do you not think I can do it myself? I was like, I'm, I'm sorry. I will go in myself now. And that was uh, my first introduction to a type of feminism that I did not understand and, and was not aware of. Apparently I'd offended uh, this girl by opening the door for her. And these are just some of the, <laughs> the lessons that you get as a farm boy from Alabama going to Brown uh, in, in the Northeast and learning a very different type of, of, of world up there. And, and again, this is not, that's, you know, this, this, this story is not indicative of everyone by any means, but in every crowd, there's, there's some wild ones and some ones you can learn from. Right. And there was a lot of folks I learned a lot from, but you know, for every, but there's also that, that outlier here and there that was, whoa. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I had the culture shock when I moved from Tennessee to Chicago as well, for sure. Uh, not to that extreme. I'm trying to think. I, I don't. I uh, to the other extreme. I remember a girl that that I went on a few dates with in high school, and one time I stepped on the escalator in front of her at the mall, and she stood at the bottom of the escalator till I came back down and let her go first. I think that was the last date. Um, so there. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> there's there's the other extreme. So didn't, didn't, and didn't and go. and you know who yeah. I'm gonna you know who I'm gonna be googling once once this is over. Uh, no. Wonder what happened to her. So you know. Oh yeah. <laughs> so there you go. All Actually, right. I can't so, even remember her last name, so that's not happening. Yeah, yeah. So so uh, got got off topic a little bit there this morning. So ESG um, got some 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 more discussions coming there soon. I know it's a topic of interest for for both of us. Um, Russell, one of the things that I want to talk about was uh, ETF flows, especially with bonds. I saw an article last week, um, I think it was last Tuesday, and it was saying that over the last week, again, this is last week, um, about look at the Vanguard, Vanguard short-term corporate bond ETF, which I believe is the second biggest bond ETF on the market, outflows, dramatic over $921 million in a week. Now that's about two and a half percent decrease in week over week. Now to pause for a second, just to make, make sure people understand what that means um, with an ETF, you're unlike a stock where you own shares and an ETF, you technically own units. And so new units can be created or quote destroyed based on the demand for that ETF. So for example, if, if more people want to buy uh, shares of uh, units, um, I'm using the term in, in, interchangeably, but technically it's units for an ETF. Um, if more people want to buy this ETF than people that want to sell it, you can actually create um, 
new units of this, right? So for example, if you've got an S&P 500 ETF, um, that's just an index ETF and more people want to buy it, they can buy those stocks and create a new unit and sell that to you, right? Now, um, if, uh, but because these things are pegged to the price of the market, you're not going to go below NAV. You're going to be very, very tight to the net asset value. So to keep this from trading below the net asset value, they would destroy, which means disassemble these shares or units of the ETF. So if a lot of people are wanting to sell it versus buy it, what they can do is they can take those shares off the market, sell them to you, you get your money back, and then they take the components of that share and then they distribute it into the market. So they sell it into the market, which in, indirectly is not good for the price price because you're, 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 you're pushing a lot of bonds onto the market. It doesn't affect directly affect the owner of that ETF unit that was uh, destroyed or disassembled. But when it hits the actual market, the shares that were inside that unit, that's actually can be bad on the market, right? So, and that, that's a two and a half percent decrease in a week of this, of, of that, of that ETF. It just, astounding um what are your what, what, I, what does it make you think russell well first off it's like why would you sell bonds when we're getting ready to you know when we're closer to the end of a rate you know of, of a rate hike cycle you know what i mean i mean i i i, I, I there's got to be a compelling place for that nine what was it uh 900 million almost a billion dollars yeah. it's got to yeah. be that money's going somewhere now, you know, maybe it's uh, one of the things that's been pushing stocks higher. But I mean, my, my first impression is now it's not exactly the best time to be selling bonds. Uh, if anything, you, you might want to buy bonds because uh, you know this, I know this, but a lot of people don't know this. Uh, bond funds do well when interest rates go down because the bond prices go up. Yeah. I, I hope that who was ever behind the 900 million uh, knows that. Well, this is also this is also the short-term corporate bond ETF too. Yeah. yeah. So and, yeah. And, and maybe that maybe that's a you know, reallocating. Maybe someone is bullish or just going to cash. You know, I I can understand that going to cash, especially when you consider you know one of the things that I think is annoying um, <laughs> or I had to say it this way, but a bit of ignorance that is annoying is people will assume at times, and I think that advisors can do a better job of being clear about this, that just because interest rates are going up, that that doesn't mean that all the bonds in a bond fund went up, right? Because you're, they're holding existing bonds, you know, so. Went down. You said interest rates up, down. We're talking about, I'm talking about first, they've been on the way up. Right? Oh, okay. Now, okay. Okay. So they've been on the way up. So when you're thinking about bonds, it's like, well, you know, interest rates are going up. Let's buy bonds because interest rates are going up because they pay a higher interest rate. Okay. Well, just because you buy a bond ETF or bond mutual fund after rates went up, that doesn't mean that you get that rate, right? Now, if they're buying bonds, then presumably they're buying bonds with higher coupons, right? But presumably most of the portfolio is not brand new bonds with higher interest rates, right? So, in fact, you know, I think issu issuance hasn't been that great anyway. Because exactly, there's not a lot of new high coupon bonds out there. Exactly, so not a lot of high of new high coupon bonds, which makes sense. A lot of people were pushing bonds to market when 
rates were low in anticipation of rates going up. If you, it's, it's, it's just like this. If you're buying a house and you expect uh, mortgage rates to go from 3% to 6%, you're probably going to go ahead and want to get that mortgage. It's going to push you to go to the market and get that, get that mortgage before it goes up to 6%. And companies feel that as well, right? So no, you don't have as many bonds that have come to market with these higher coupon rates, lower rate of issuance, but going into an ETF or a mutual fund doesn't necessarily mean that you're getting this higher. So, you know, the average coupon price may go up, right? As some of your short term that has very uh, low coupons as those uh, mature, and then the new money or new inflows is allocated to higher coupons if they're even available, right? Um, but that's kind of the thing is if you're selling all these bonds and you're, and you're, and you're selling them according to the, the, the portfolio um, allocation, that's pretty interesting uh, to me why we would be be doing that. You know, I think now on the on the other hand, if, if you've got an opportunity to buy a lot of high coupon bonds uh, for a decent price, then I guess I can understand why you'd sell an ETF to go into those individual bonds um, at higher at higher rates because they will they will definitely preserve their value much more. I, and I think that's happening a lot in the family office space, by the way. I think that, you know, a lot of liquidity is being soaked up by, hey, you know, because from a family office point, you know, you're, 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 you're ultra wealthy. You're typically, you know, in the hundreds of millions. And you're thinking about, you know, if I can lock in 4%, 5%, 6% on some of this money, that makes sense. Right. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Especially if you're using bonds for income. There's two different types of, of uh, there are more than two different types. But for this conversation, uh, there are bond hold. There are people that have exposure to bonds because uh, they want to get price appreciation out of the bonds. And that's what I would use an ETF for. That's what I have used an ETF for. Um, I bought one of the short ones when we started the rate you know, hike cycle and did OK with it. Um, now I would probably be on the other side of what you just talked about. So uh, I got to go find, I, I've got 900 million somewhere. Um, I've just got to, you know, move it over into short-term bonds. Um, that, you know, and that, that number sounds really high, but, and, and something else within the fixed income market that a lot of people have been fixated on is that we're going to start getting federal bond issuance. And I've heard I've heard it's pin up to a trillion dollars. I'm looking at a site right now from the Treasury Direct site. Um, they are going to issue this week right now. They have one hundred and forty eight billion. Hold on. No, got to add that one. Uh, one hundred and seventy one hundred eighty billion worth of federal paper coming to market this week. And then next week, they've got a bunch scheduled that they haven't said how much they're going to offer quite yet. Uh, but I have heard, and I haven't been able to verify the number. That's why I was looking at this site. I've heard that because of the debt ceiling thing, that we may have to issue almost a trillion of debt this summer. And you got to wonder, where is the money to buy that? Where's it going to come from? And I heard one argument um, that, well, the government will just buy them from themselves, which there has been some of that. Uh, but and and we used to pay a lot more attention to the treasury auctions. You know, they're, they're, it's kind of like a headline that goes across your Bloomberg and you're like, OK, that sounds nice. And you move on in life. Uh, I do think that 
people are going to be a lot more fixated over the next few weeks on bond auctions. It may be very possible that they yank that money out to put into treasury securities uh, and try to catch treasury securities at a lower issuing price because so much supply relative to demand is coming in. That'd be one of the few things that I would actually consider if I were pulling 900 million out of the corporate uh, bond market, because you're going to get better coupons from the federal government uh, and you probably can are going to benefit from some price appreciation as well as rates start to come down in the next couple of years. This is a fascinating site. (laughs) The the treasurydirect.gov shows the upcoming auctions and then shows the auction results as well. They, uh, Fascinating. This, this it, is still yeah, I, I, and you don't want me because I'll totally you'll you'll lose me if I keep looking. Does at this uh, does this come up on date now with Mrs. Rhodes? Yeah. Oh, Trendy. yeah, honey, you would not believe. So <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't believe this number. It's funny. She was uh, just in here, and I was I was grading on a total taking a right on you here for a second. Was um, I think I actually did impress her. Because I was grading uh, derivatives homework, and I had you know somebody's homework up on the screen. She's like, "Oh my god, this looks hard!" And I go, "Yeah, that's what I teach." So maybe I'll get a little bit more uh, cognitive respect around the house. I, I, I'm sure that you, I, I, I'm sure you have plenty of that. It might be that you're a goofball. That, I am a goofball. Uh, <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with being a goofball. No, I, I agree 100. It's uh, you. You have to stay light in this stuff. You know, the intensity that if which some people go into this stuff is how do you stay that intense all the time? How do you how does your brain function without letting up if you're going to be have to to be analytical and dig into these things and understand complex information and trade offs and. And all this stuff is trade-offs, right? And it's all, you know, different factors and pushing this way, pushing that way and. You know, I don't see how you do it without staying, without having a lighthearted aspect of it and doing something different. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, I, I do that in the classroom as well. And there's always two or three students that absolutely hate me. I'm not here for stand up. I'm here to learn something. So, well, you're also with me for three hours on a Monday after working all day. I got to do something to keep you awake. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is this is kind of one of the problems with um, with academia is and and it's a, it's a characteristic of, you know, when you have to, when you have to take a class and you have only so many people you can take it from because it's a university, right? And this mandatory class, or I want this class, there's only one professor that does it, you know, in, in the real world, you can go find your sources and who appeals to you and who's your taste. And as a marketer, as a financial advisor, as anything, really, you can be yourself and attract those who you are most uniquely suited um, to serve, you know, like this, this podcast, you know, you don't like us, you don't like our personality or what we talk about. You just turn it off. to listen to someone else. Right. And if you like the way we do things and what we talk about, and, uh, then you, you keep, you, you stay tuned, right. Um, you figure out whether we're your taste or not, whereas in the classroom, it doesn't work that way, you know? And so you can, there's a, there's a, it, it, it's like in the classroom, you have to kind of try to play the middle and be unremarkable to everyone, right? Because you don't want anyone to hate you. You have to kind of play defense. If you're yourself and you are what makes you most unique and most special, 
you will have some students that particularly love you, right? But then you're going to also polarize some that particularly aren't your taste, right? And so that's one of the things I think is kind of funny about, about professor reviews is if everyone kind of feels the same way, then that professor is probably boring. And they're probably, just kind of, they're <laughs> yeah. probably checking the box and they're probably, you know, just they figured out how to cruise in the middle where if you want to impact lives, the only way to impact lives is by truly like shining in your area of shine. And that's not going to appeal to everyone, but it will, it will really inspire some. Right. So I feel like you kind of need some polarization in there. Um, if you want to truly inspire kids and make them want to reach for the next thing or really truly be interested in something. But, and there's also some in the classroom that just aren't really interested in being that interested. They just want to check the box and get out of here. They hate it here. And all you're doing is they're just bitter about the whole process. Right? Yeah. So luck, luckily I, I'm only teaching graduate school now. So <laughs> I don't have to, uh, I, I, I don't have the, the youngsters that, that think the, the uh, feedback form is revenge. <laughs> those those happen in grad school too. Maybe not for you, but those happen in grad school too. I think that folks in grad school are generally more cost conscious, not always. And so you kind of, and I, I get it, you know, I've got a master's and a PhD like you and going through it that I was definitely more sensitive about stuff. I'm, I'm like, why am I paying for this? You know, oh, God, on, yeah. on, on, on certain stuff, you know, why am I paying for this? So and the why am I paying for this is going to be different for different people. Oh, yeah. Right. No, absolutely. Um, equal weighted ETF. So do we want to, we want to shift to that? Oh, or most de most definitely. Going? Because um, I, we, we've been talking about, and I've been talking about the underperformance of the Russell 2000 versus the S&P 500 this year. Uh, the, the spread is still about uh, 6% or so. The S&P beaten rut. Uh, usually when it widens out to that, it narrows and the Russell 2000 overtakes the S&P 500. And, you know, I, I was I was drawn to that by all the discussion about how narrow based the the market has been this year. You know, 50 percent of the Nasdaq 100 performance is five or six stocks and a good portion of the S&P 500 is just a narrow group of very large cap stocks. And, and my thinking was uh, Russell 2000 long, S&P short, or even maybe NASDAQ short, but I just prefer the S&P as the short there, uh, would be a good way to play the catch up of the other stocks that haven't participated in the rally yet. Or if the rally fizzles out and all those large stocks start to fall apart, then I do okay with my S&P short. It didn't occur to me to take a look at uh, equal weighted ETFs versus capitalization weighted ETFs, uh, and really until you sent me a, a email or a text over the weekend about it. Uh, but that makes a ton of sense. Uh, and if and and you had noted to me that the, there's really strong flows going into the equal weighted indexes. Well, what happens is you were talking about the creation and redemption process with ETFs, if if a lot of money flows into the uh, equal weighted index or equal weighted ETFs, the issuer of those ETFs turns around and takes that money and buys in equal amounts, equal dollar amounts, uh, the 500 stocks in the S&P 500. And when they do that, 
it's going to have a much bigger influence on the smallest S&P 500 stock than the largest S&P 500 stock. So on my uh, my weekend review list of things to look at, I'm going to keep I'm going to I'm keeping a very close eye on the equal weighted versus the capital cap weighted uh, flows. Because if, if you know, if, if you're looking around for individual stocks to purchase and you take a look at what's done extremely well this year uh, and you just don't feel like paying up for a stock that's already up 30 percent this year, you're going to end up looking at smaller cap stocks. And if this is the beginning of a trend, then then, then you probably want to latch onto it early on. You can just go ahead and buy one of the. Uh, equal weighted ETFs as well, but if you're if you're an individual stock picker, uh, that's just another reason that maybe you need to be looking at the stocks that haven't participated in this year this year's rally yet, because just by default, money going into equal equal weighted ETFs is going to push them up quicker than um, other stock, uh, you know, than the larger cap stocks that have already gone up an awful lot. Yeah, and I, I, would, I would add to what you said with. Um... But the dynamics of just this, you know, creation. So, you know, for example, if if you're if you're making the judgment, and, I, and obviously all these people that are buying the the equal weighted index ETF, they're not necessarily all taking money from the S and P five hundred or, or or something similar. So, take this with a grain of salt. But I would imagine that some of that is a rotation of, hey, I still want to be in large cap. This is still a large cap allocate. Now, some of these could be coming just from the market, right? From coming from bonds or anything else or coming from cash. But to the extent that this is a choice of, I still want to be in large cap, but I don't want to be in a market weighted index. What I mean by that is the S&P 500 is a uh, is a cap weighted index. What that means is, is the components, the stocks uh, are weighted by how big the company is, what their market cap is. So you take a company like Apple, um, which is you know, the biggest company now, and what percentage of the S&P 500 is it? I think it's like 6% or something like that, Russell. I, I think Microsoft and Apple are about 6 to 7% of the S&P 500. Yeah. So you, you take a stock like that and well, you're, you're, you're automatically, let me look. Uh, Apple is 7.46 and Microsoft is 6.74. Yeah. Okay, and, then, so, and then comes Amazon. Yeah. So if you're buying the S&P 500, you're about seven and a half percent of your investment is Apple. Six and, six and three quarters percent of your investment is Microsoft. Three percent is Amazon. Two and a half percent is NVIDIA. Two point said is is two two percent is Alphabet, which is component of Google. One point eight percent is Tesla. See where I'm going with this is by the time you get to the top eight or ten stocks, that's a third of the entire market. It's just a few stocks. So when you look and you see that you know Nvidia, which is one of those biggest companies, right? Nvidia is the fourth biggest company right now. Well, Nvidia is up one hundred sixty five percent year to date. Um, you know, you look at, uh, what is it? Meta meta is, um, let's see where they at. Meta is the ninth biggest company. Well, meta is up, um, 120% this year. Tesla, that's a, that's a number. That's the sixth biggest company. Tesla is up 98% this year. 
So you see where I'm going. Uh, Amazon. Amazon um, is up 47% this year. So these are huge numbers. So if you're if you're looking at this and saying, I want to move out of the S&P 500, stay in large caps, some of this money is moving into equal weighted indexes. What that means is, is if you're trading in a, you know, um, S&P 500 cap weighted index for equal weighted index, that means you're no longer going to have seven and a half percent of your investment in Apple. You're going to have, you know, I don't know, 0.3% or whatever, whatever that comes down to a tiny percent because all of the stocks are given the, the given the same weighting, regardless of their size. As Russell po uh, pointed out, a company that has a much smaller market cap is it's going to mean a lot more to them to have that investment, um, you know, depending on their, on their size. Right. So you have a, a stock that's, Oh, I don't know. Um, you know, a uh, carnival, you know, or Trimble, uh, Mosaic, uh, Kimco Realty, uh, uh, Match Group, which is the dating sites, Hormel Foods. These are in the in the in the top four hundred, top five hundred, but barely, right? Dish Network. Um, now you've got Dish Network and Ralph Lauren and less uh, less Apple. So this may, this means something because not only is it, is it more meaningful for that company to have that investment, but also it means that if you're selling the S&P 500 ETF and buying an equal weighted ETF, it means that net you're selling Apple into and, and, and Microsoft and to go into these smaller components of the S&P 500. So um, if this trend continues, that can mean some slowing down of these high flying tech companies that are the, the biggest and maybe some catching up of, of the components that are, that are, that are much smaller uh, components. The, the scary part of this, I think, is that, uh, you know, there's a lot of a lot of companies, you know, in the S&P 500 that's uh, that aren't profitable year to date or or barely are, you know, half the components. There's there's a the reason. Yeah. I mean, half <laughs> the components in the S&P 500 yeah. are, are down so far this year. Right. Yep. So, you know, I, you have a few that are up really big and then you have, you know, um, hundred or so that are up really well. And then another hundred or so that are okay. And then you've got 250 stocks that are down. Well, I, um, no, yeah. I mean, there, there are likely a lot of S&P, uh, stocks that are down. I, I did the quick math and right now, as of this moment, uh, mid morning Monday or midday Monday, uh, the S&P 500 is up 6.45%. The equal weighted index is up 2.65%. I've got no historical, uh, you know, ranges to bounce that off of. But by the time you talk to me next week, I will. <laughs> I've been doing a lot. I've been doing a lot with it. And, and right now, uh, the S&P is up 6.45%. Uh, I'm sorry, the RUT is up 6.45%. The S&P is up 12.23%. Totally. It, strike that in editing, please. Um, I, I just, I quoted the wrong market. The S&P is up... Um, 12.23%. The equal weighted is up only 2.65%. There's about a 10% spread between the two. The Russell is up 6.45%. Um, so I just, I had scribbled down numbers in the wrong places on my little pad. Uh, so there, there's a wide spread there. Uh, if there's a simple way to go long, the equal weight and short the cap weight, uh, I think that's a, a really good trade. If you don't, 
trade like that, if you're a, more of a longer term investor and you're looking for good entry points on stocks, go look at stocks that 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 are you know in the bottom half of that 500 that maybe have good fundamentals but just haven't gotten a whole lot of love in 2023. Yeah, I, I, this this makes me want to look into the um, more quality um, ETFs as well. You know, is, is there an opportunity for the Russell and you know, I think some of the ETF issuers do a quality and you know uh, rank it by quality um, and maybe even oh, dividend yield. But. There's um the dividend aristocrats, yeah. um, which uh, it, which is and I use this as part of my dissertation. The stocks that were in the dividend aristocrats, which are f- about fifty, and they redo this every year, but it's fifty of the S and P five hundred stocks that have increased their dividend every year for the last twenty five years. Mm-hmm. And the dividend aristocrats over a long period of time tends to outperform the the cap weighted S and P five hundred. Uh, tends to underperform during really strong bull runs, and then but makes it up when we end up in a bearish market and those stocks hold up better. They're more defensive type of stocks as well. Uh, so the dividend aristocrats fund, and there I think the ETF ticker is N O B L for Noble. Wish I wish I had come up with that, um, but that that's uh, what you're referring to there, and that is again, it's got less volatility and over a long period of time does beat the S and P 500. Uh, yeah, that, that's my market exposure. When I'm, there, when I'm there's also about. some ETFs that do um, some smart beta weightings, and I know that smart beta is a whole different other conversation. So I don't want to either plug it or or hate on it without a full conversation. Uh, but I do know they do some some uh, screenings on some of these ETFs about quality, which I haven't looked in these in, in, in quite some time, so I don't remember the, the, how they're weighting it, but um, that would be interesting at this point. I just don't know off the top of head, my head of um, a, a, a large cap based that does something similar that's intentionally excluding the largest components uh, or as I might want to say those that are most heavily influenced by AI right now because a big reason that you know some of these components have gone up in value so quickly is AI is the sexiest thing on the market right now and if you can tap into AI and um, I saw some article recently about the number of times that that, that AI is being uh, referenced in, uh, in, 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 <laughs> in CEO calls and other company calls. It's just AI every every five seconds. I, I I can remember when blockchain became a thing, and you had all of these financial firms talking about how blockchain was going to streamline a lot of their workflows. Um, I know there was an exchange that said. Uh, that they were going to use blockchain it uh, to to handle clearing, uh, you know, and deciding you know who traded what every single day. Uh, clearing houses were going to use that, uh, and then they found out that when you use blockchain, if there is an error, it is a freaking nightmare to fix the error in the blockchain. So you know there was all this talk about how great blockchain was going to be for exchanges. I'll guarantee none of them are using uh, blockchain uh, to track you know, to track their trades from day to day. They're still using the traditional systems. But when blockchain was a buzzword, oh yeah, they were totally, uh, you know, totally talking about that, which was kind of, uh, my favorite was uh, was blockchain was going to be how all of our legal records were kept. 
So I, I don't know. I am, I'm not going to I'm not going to bring you into this one, but I might have an incident that I was embarrassed about in the past that got expunged. If it were on the blockchain, it would never be expunged. So it, it, that, that's why it can't be used for the legal system. Yeah, I'm not trying to to poo all over blockchain, but it, it, it and, and I feel like AI is being looked at in the same vein. Uh, blockchain, you know, cool, cool technology, looking for a way to monetize it. AI, cool technology, looking for a way to monetize it. The only way I could come up with the monetize uh, block uh, AI is if somebody paid me to write papers for them and I just used blockchain to do it or used AI to do it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I look at this as, as, as tools, you know, yeah. um, any, any tools you can bring into a process, there's, there's going to be, there'll be a demand for people that know how to use those tools and use those tools. Well, I mean, there's now a, a demand for prompt writers for chat GPT and other things like that. People that know how to write prompts in the best way to get the best type of results. Um, that's, that's become a job is prompt writer. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's, this, it'll be the same thing that we ran into with calculators is why do I need to know this? I have a calculator and, yeah. <laughs> you know, why do I need to know this? I, I have AI and it allows us to be shallower if we want to. And let, let me, let me take that with a grain of salt. Cause I don't want that to sound like a sound black and white because um, I use the word shallower and shallower does sound pretty biased as, as a negative, but being shallower in one area can allow us to be deeper in another. It can allow us to have a higher quality of life in another, it can allow us to specialize in another. So it, so being shallower in, a, in, in certain ways is a good thing if it improves our lot. However, being shallower in a way can have very detrimental effects on society when we don't understand why things happen the way they happen. If we don't understand why things happen the way they happen, we don't know how to fix it. We don't actually go look into that. I mean, it's kind of like the conversation you and I were having about arguments um, and that I feel like a lot of academia is now much more in teaching people what to think and memorizing information rather than getting into how do we come to this, how do we come to this conclusion? And how do I tell if the information that's being put in front of me is biased? Well, probably is to some extent. How do you tease that out? How do you weigh information? How do you weigh it based on where it came from? Um, how do you not just dismiss something because it came from somewhere that you, that you, that you don't like, right? That they have other things that you disagree. You know, so just the, this, this thought of how to get to an answer and how to look at the way something was put together and know, was it done correctly or not? You know, and that's one of the things that's, uh, that I fear with AI is it can, it can give us the ability to be dumber, um, which has some benefits, but it also has some drawbacks. And you see that a lot already with just all the crazy stuff that people continue to believe um, and, and widespread belief that people believe uh, because it's the politically correct thing to believe um, or it's what's taught at a school or at home or whatever. I mean, you can take any angle you want, uh, but it's just, um, I think there's a lot of room there with AI to, to be specialists in that. And the ones that can, can actually determine is there, 
is there bias in this? And and there's already been they're, they're already showing studies that it has that that these tools have bias. Um, and of course, they have bias because the the information that's, that, that's being used to pro, to put put in these things, it's not the the conclusion won't be better than what's put in it, right? And so, if you're plowing it in, full of biased information that has that, so will be the system. Oh yeah, and and I, I think there are. I haven't played around with it very much. I think we talked about what I did with Chat GPT, where I. Uh, put all my homework questions into it and then compared my students' answers to the homework questions that ChatGPT had, <laughs> the answers that it had given me, which was kind of a fun exercise. But I do think, uh, my understanding is there are people that argue with uh, ChatGPT and maybe it learns from those arguments or tells ChatGPT it's wrong. Uh, but also, you know, the machine can't, the, the machine doesn't understand that Fox Business and CNN are have different biases. And they probably get conflicting information sometimes from from one and the other. And there are all kind you know, there's a whole range of opinions that come in there. Uh, so you partially you have to wonder uh, where is it? Draw, you know, what's what's its source? And, it, and and I would assume that there's bias in the source which shows up in what the machine is saying. Yeah. You know, that's probably why the machines are going to take us over. They start seeing how uh, nothing seems to be true, that, every, you know, that everybody's truth is completely different and decides that it's time to, uh, that, that it's time to get rid of all the people. And then we get Terminator. Don't get me on the, on, on the, my truth stuff that yeah. is that's so prevalent nowadays. Do you um, like, do you like my purple sweater? Yeah, it's uh, with <laughs> your, your truth, brother. My truth is it's purple. That's uh, it's your truth. I would I, I, if I if I say the fact, then I'm uh, an ist or a phobe. You can you can say the sky is orange, but but and you can get away with that in New York right now. Well, yeah, that, I used to have this uh, a friend of mine that was a, a writer. She was got wrote a lot of libertarian stuff. She's very, very interesting person. Um, she was disabled and lesbian and uh, very outspoken free market libertarian. And I, I just put all those things in there because it's, uh, it's not what you typically expect from a free market libertarian. Um, but, uh, but we had this term that, 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 that I think she, I think she created istophobe, which is basically if you don't like what someone says, you just call something ist or something phobe or phobic, you know. So istophobic is just this general word for I don't know. We're going to cancel you some way because we don't like what you say. So you're some sort of ist, some sort of phobe. You're istophobe. <laughs> well, I like that. So, well, what what do you? Oh, nationalist. Yeah, I was trying to think of when you when you call somebody a Nazi. What do you actually say? Say oh, nationalist. Yeah. Um, so we got uh, we got three day weekend coming up. Yeah, we uh, don't. We're going to be recording next Monday. Oh, well, we yeah, we will be. We we'll be recording. But the markets but, uh, have a three day weekend coming up for Juneteenth, and uh, there, there's always been this thing with respect to VIX, where VIX. Uh, typically has a bit of a headwind in December. And the reason behind that is VIX is calculated using calendar days. And when you have a holiday, um, that puts a little bit of pressure on the implied volatility of options that's being calculated using calendar days and not trading days. 
And in December every year, we would have three holidays between the VIX calculation and the options that were being used to determine VIX. It was the uh, Christmas, New Year's, and MLK. So there'd be this time period where we would expect VIX to dip just based on um, you know this this anomaly within the calculation. Well, now we have another with Juneteenth, which kind of I feel like they created it, and then we were told we had the holiday just like a week or two later. Uh, either I missed it or it just came out and surprised me. So this is kind of the first year that that it's on all of the market calendars, and. Everybody's been up in arms about VIX with a 13 handle lately. I do think a small part of that may be coming from us having two holidays between uh, today and the options that are used to calculate VIX. Uh, so we might start to see two seasonal patterns, one in December, which is which is... It has to do with the holidays. It also has to do with December being kind of a quiet time of the year. Uh, and you know what? June's kind of a quiet time of the year, too, as people go on vacation. But I think we're going to start to see the same kind of seasonality in for VIX in June that we often see after Thanksgiving going into the end of the year. And it's totally based on two having a couple of days off instead of just one day off. And so why would that matter to a typical retail client or to an advisor who's setting expectations with his clients? Uh, one is that uh, if, if you, and, and you see a lot of the popular press talking about how when VIX gets really low, that that can be a green light for the market or it can be a contrary indicator. Uh, I, I think those absolute statements are kind of silly, but if you do pay close attention to VIX and uh you know, you feel like when VIX is is under pressure, even though the S&P 500 is not doing a whole lot to the upside, that maybe it's an indication that uh, the S&P 500 is getting ready to to make a move to the upside because nobody's nobody's really stepping up for protection. I just want to have in the back of your mind, if you're using it as an indicator, that there's a little bit of an anomaly that shows up in, you know, in December and in June. And to correct for that, I have always said, pay attention to the front month future instead of the index, because the future, uh, the, the, the people that are trading the future, uh, they are aware of these days off and they, you know, that they're, if VIX happens to be down this coming Friday, uh, more than you would expect based on market conditions, because it's in front of a three-day weekend, uh, the VIX futures traders are aware of this and won't start selling the VIX future uh, based on the excess weakness in the index. So you know, if you use VIX as an indicator, you definitely want to be aware of that. And if you use VIX as an indicator, you really should always be using it in conjunction with the um, the VIX futures contract, because that's the one people are actually putting money to work in. And that's the, uh, that. I think that's a better opinion of the market than the spot VIX index. Yeah. And for those, um, just as a reminder, the spot VIX index is actually using um, a combination of, of options from 23 to 27 days to expiration in order to create a, um, I guess, a hypothetical 30-day constant um, implied it's constant volatility. So um, 
by putting these in conjunction, looking them side by side, what are you actually trying to to to, to see from the difference? You, know, you see you you see money being put to work front month, right? Um, but how how does this? Uh, sorry, I said twenty seven, twenty three to thirty seven to 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 get a um, a thirty day constant volatility. So, you know, this guy goes back to, you know, knowing the final number, which is the VIX versus knowing what goes into it and remembering that people aren't actually trading the VIX itself because the VIX is um, a, a calculation that's put together from SPX, so S&P 500 index options. And then there's actually derivatives that are based on the VIX, but the VIX itself is not is not uh, tradable. Just reminding our, our listeners of that. So when you're looking at the VIX as an indicator and you're saying the VIX, which is combining the 23 to 37 day uh, um, uh, options, what do you really mean by that? What does that mean to say? I need to look at the front month in conjunction with VIX. You want to look at the front month future contract. Uh, the front month future contract does settle into a VIX calculation. Uh, so, um, you know, the the trading the VIX future, uh, especially if you're if you're looking at holding it close to expiration, uh, you, you're you're going to have an outlook as to where you think VIX is going to be when we get close to settlement, not where it is, you know, today based on uh, based on current market conditions. Um, you're, you're really looking farther out than how VIX behaves on a Friday before a three-day weekend and behaves on a Tuesday after the three-day weekend. Uh, but also, uh, because VIX again settles into the VIX future settled into a calculation of spot VIX. Uh, if if something were to happen right now and VIX ran up to thirty or thirty five, you would want to take a look at the June future. And if the June future is is going up in sync with VIX, then that means the futures traders think higher volatility is here and it's going to stick around. If the future is lagging the spot VIX, which is typical, uh, that's usually a pretty good indication that the futures traders believe VIX is going to come back down between whatever date we're on and the VIX settlement. And if they believe that, then they're also saying that stocks are going to go higher. So you can it, that, that's how you can use those two in conjunction with each other. Awesome. I love that. So you're, you're using me as one as an indicator of the other and is a, is a confirmation of, or, or the set expectations is, Will this continue to go higher? Um, you know, the 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 VIX is telling us this blended 30 days from now, based on the 23 to 37 days, we've blended it to a constant 30 day. What is the implied volatility? What, what level of volatility is being implied by the trades that are happening in the S&P 500 index options. That's what, exactly. you're, what you're just saying. Exactly. But when you look at the front month future, you're saying, okay, fair enough on the VIX. I understand that. But what are traders actually doing that would imply, or is money being put to work, would imply that this, is going to this trend is going to continue to go up or this is kind of reaching more of an exhaustion point? Yeah, absolutely. It, it, exactly. Exactly. The the futures and the other part of it is if you're using the if you're using VIX options or futures as some sort of tail risk hedge, uh, typically when you get a spike in VIX, you take those positions off. You know, if you're hedging with S&P 500 index options, 
uh, and you're hedging a portfolio, uh, usually you're going to hold that to about expiration uh, and get cash settlement and move on. Uh, if you really want to benefit from owning calls on VIX or being long the VIX future, uh, when you get the spike, that's when you monetize it. And seeing how much monetization is going on in the form of selling the VIX future while the spot VIX is going up, uh, that that's a pretty good indication of the mind of the market. If VIX is spiking and, and the future, and you're not seeing a lot of selling on the future, you're not seeing a lot of people getting out of long call positions, uh, that means they don't think that move is over. And you may want to stay out of the way with respect to buying stocks as well. Awesome. Well, as a reminder, everyone, uh, give us a follow on Instagram if you're on there at untamed underscore ethos on Twitter at Russell Rhodes or at the Joshua Wilson. You can also find us on LinkedIn and Facebook. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today, and we'll see you next time. Thank you, Dr. Vicks, for joining me again. Thanks.